0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Lucy Aldrich, sister-in-law to John D. Rockefeller Jr. and daughter of Rhode Island Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, joked in a letter to his sister that she had an easy out for any boring conversation. Quote, for the rest of my life, when I am stalled conversationally, it would be a wonderful thing to fall back on. Oh, I must tell you about the time I was captured by Chinese bandits. Aldrus was one of many foreign grandees traveling on a 1923 Beijing bound train from Shanghai, captured by the Shandong Provisional Army, a ragtag group of bandits who hoped the American, British, and European hostages might force China's government and its many warlords to accede to their demands. The situation is the subject of the Peking Express, the bandits who stole train, stunned the West, and broke the Republic of China, from James Zimmerman, who studies the frantic efforts by diplomats, Chinese government, and, at times, the hostages and bandits themselves in avoiding a bloody outcome. James M. Zinnerman is a Beijing-based lawyer who has lived and worked in China for over 25 years. He is among China's leading foreign lawyers as the author of the China Law Desk Book, published by the American Bar Association, and is frequently featured as a political commentator on U.S.-China relations in various print and broadcast media around the globe. He is also the former four-term chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. Today, James and I talk about what became known as the Lin Chang Incident and how this hostage situation and potential diplomatic disaster may have changed the course of Chinese history. So, James, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the the Peking Express. You know, one thing that that I think struck me and probably strikes everyone who looks at this incident is um, just how important, wealthy, and diverse the group of hostages are that are taken on this train. Um, you know, like the, the train starts in Shanghai. What made the city, especially in the 1920s, such a, a cosmopolitan center for, for business, for culture, for finance, for, for everything?
1: I mean, in 1923, Shanghai was clearly, you know, a boom town. I mean, it was considered to be like the Paris of, of Asia. I mean, you have banks that were based there, you had manufacturing, uh, it was just a booming area. Um, and this was in uh, 1923 was also a, you know, peacetime, you know, in the post-World War One, And a lot of um, a lot of companies were looking to Shanghai, looking to China as a huge market. And so um, Shanghai and other treaty ports throughout the country, you know, were doing really very, very well. Their populations were increasing. Infrastructure was being built, you know, and living. Living in a place like Shanghai in 1923 was no different from living in, say, New York, London, Paris, and other major cities around the world. You know, But the interesting thing, too, is just outside the city limits, things were quite different. It was a big contrast from, you know, the booming areas of Shanghai and the more rural areas of other parts of China. And part of that was that China was struggling with, you know, what was... Um, you know, it was, what was we, we know as the, the warlord era. You know, it was in 1923, that was 12 years after the fall of the Qing government. And, you know, we had this uh, a revolving door uh, of warlords that were coming in and out of the Peking government. And so the, the central government was having a real difficult time trying to, you know, unify the country trying to get control over all of these factions, you know, warlord factions that were fighting one another. But so while Shanghai was booming, you know, just outside the city limits, you know, things could be a struggle, you know, and that's something that was the overall kind of environment that, you know, things were in, in 1923.
0: And it's funny you talk about kind of like the the, the struggle outside the city, because that actually is a good segue to my question about who these bandits actually were. Um, you know, the bandits that derailed the train, captured the foreign hostages. Um, you know, their their leader, Sun Mayo, and I think as as he's portrayed in the book, um, through I guess, through the historical sources, I mean he doesn't seem like your, I guess your stereotype of a bandit leader. He has very um, he has political demands. Um, I can't remember the exact name of the bandit army. It was like the Shantung Provisional Army or something like that. But who exactly like was this group and the and who were the people that led them?
1: Yeah, most of these men, at least Sun Miao's men, were um, disbanded soldiers because what was happening in 1923, you know, as, you know, warlords were fighting one another from province to province, city to city, you had a situation where, you know, uh, one army would prevail over the other, and then you ended up having large groups of disbanded soldiers, you know, these were, you know, armed men, you know, that had weapons, but they did not have jobs. You know, they didn't have food, and then a lot of them didn't have any place to go. And some of them that tried to get back to their hometowns were not greeted very well, you know. And um, unfortunately, the warlords, rather than addressing the underlying issues, you know, what they were doing was engaging in bandit suppression campaigns, you know, and going in and attacking these, you know, these disbanded soldiers. And so, yeah, in the um, Peking Express story, the Lin Chung incident, the bandit chief was himself an officer in one of the local militias. His, um, his troops were disbanded and, and then he tried to go home to Southern Shandong, but the local warlord, the provincial warlord would have none of that, you know? And so the, the local warlord was actually attacking not just Sun Miao and his men, but he was also attacking the villages where they they lived. Um, the final straw for Sun Miao was when the provincial warlord, General Tian, um, executed Sun Miao's brother. And, and his brother was just a scholar, local scholar. You know, the family was a very relatively, you know, relatively well-known family in the area. You know, but the fact that he executed his brother was really a final straw for Sun Miao. And he, in effect, declared war on on, you know, the Shandong Warlord. His agenda was really to remove, you know, the warlord from his, you know, his hometown and his region. You know, his agenda was more social, uh, more political than it was economic. And he wanted the warlords out of the area. and he wanted the Peking government to recognize him you know, as, you know, as the as general in charge of the soldiers in that region. so his troops, you know, he had 700 men under him, plus it was an additional 300 from another bandit by the name of Popo Lu, who, who was more representative of the, you know, the, the underbelly of the bandit group. It's very uh, much more of a traditional thief, you know. Um, and so the bandit army in itself was made up of 1,000 men. And, and then under the leadership of so Miao, you Miao, know, they made a decision that they were gonna derail the train. They were gonna take hostage, not just you know, um, prominent foreigners, but also take uh, hostage a number of the high wealth, well-to-do Chinese you know, passengers that were on the train and then to use them as hostages um, and prisoners to, for their political agenda. And so Sun Miao was uh, very charismatic. He was someone that got a lot of respect, you know, from his men, you know, and, you know, someone that would be considered almost like a Robin Hood, you know, sticking out for looking after the interests of of those, um, you know, the local villagers and the people that he, um, you know, that he lived and grew up with. Um, The interesting thing, though, is the bandit army was comprised of a number of very interesting characters in addition to disbanded soldiers, you had people that, you know, um, that had fought, you know, in overseas wars that were, you know, soldiers of fortune in Russia, and then after the Russian Revolution, they went back home to Shandong, joined the bandit army but then, you know, one of the bandit um, subchiefs um, who went by the nickname of Ruski, who spoke Russian fluently and had a lot of stories to tell about his time, you know, traveling around Siberia and fighting in the with the Russian army. And then there was also very interesting and sophisticated, you know, bandit subchiefs <clears throat> that were also part or previously part of what is called the China Labor Corps. And these were men that were sent over to Europe during World War One to support the allied armies like the French and the British. Um, and they were workers, you know, that, you know, supported the troops and they were digging trenches, burying bodies. Um, but basically what they're, you know, they, they had the opportunity to learn a lot about modern weaponry, machinery. And they also learned continental languages, some of them spoke French, some of them spoke English, but when they returned home after World War One, a lot of them, you know, just like disbanded soldiers did not have jobs, and so they ended up joining the bandit armies to try to either be reinstated with an army or to get a job within an army or um, um, or just to protect their hometowns. So he had a number of of the bandits, very sophisticated that spoke a number of languages, including one gentleman that went by the nickname of the Frenchman. And he was someone that many of the hostages warmed up to because of his language skills. and, and because he was he was fairly sophisticated versus some of the more homegrown bandits. So you had, The bandit army was a mixed bag, a mixed bag of not just disbanded soldiers, but you also had hardened criminals, you had drug addicts, um, as well as people that were soldiers of fortune, or those that worked in the killing fields of Europe.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and there's, I mean, speaking of um, the warlords, I mean, kind of, Sun wanted to be recognized as the general of this region, then you have the the warlords on the government side, or maybe government should be in, in quotes, because... I'm sure the levels of accountability and authority were very thin. Um, but, but, um, so I mean, the warlords seem, or at least the warlord on the ground, is Marshal Tian seems very intent on using force. Seems very intent on, um, wiping out the bandits, even if it means putting the hostages at risk. Much to the, um, disappointment or horror of the foreign diplomats that are there. Um, you know what? Why? Why were I guess the the warlords so intent on? using force to to resolve this issue.
1: Well, you know, the warlords, General Tian and, and his people on the ground in the area, um, a guy that was nicknamed the black hearted General Ho. I mean, these were people that the local peasantry, the villages hated, you know, the, the villagers may have taken the view that the, the bandits were to be feared, but they really, truly hated, you know, the government soldiers. You know, the corruption level was off the charts. And quite frankly, you know, the it was the government soldiers that were selling their ammunition to the bandits. You know, and General Tian and also um, General Ho were very much well aware of that. So, um, but what happened was, is that when this, ha- when this is, uh, crisis began, you know, General Tian ordered the use of force Um, And he completely disregarded the safety, you know, of the of the foreign hostages, as well as the Chinese hostages. And part of that was because he was afraid that he would be blamed for all of this. You know, it was more of a face saving exercise for him to get in and try to destroy Sumiao before it got too far. But it actually had a reverse effect as he was as the troops were going after the bandits. It just drove them farther and farther into the countryside, deeper and deeper into bandit country, you know, where they went to what's called Patsuko Mountain, you know, where they felt protected. You know, where these were the, their mountain home, their mountain stronghold. You know, so as the, the Chinese army, the Shandong army was attacking the bandits, it just made it worse, you know? And then the foreign governments tried to step in and say, hey, you know, you really need to back off, withdraw, and negotiate with the bandits. But General Tian and General Ho did not want to do that. You know, they felt that the use of force was the right decision to be made because then they could nip this in the bud quickly, you know, and, you know, they figured what they were concerned about was the 1,000 bandit army, you know, if given the opportunity could grow, you know, and that that was actually a concern. And as over time, you know, that 1,000-member army grew to 2,800. And that was something, that was a fear of General Tien and General Ho. But overall, because the troops were not withdrawing, they actually ended up prolonging the whole, you know, the whole crisis, you know, into a full 37 days.
0: Um, So I want to talk about the hostages and maybe one in particular, which is um, Lucy Aldrich, who's probably, who was probably the most famous of the, the most famous of the hostages, I I would guess, you know. Sister-in-law to J.D. Rockefeller, um, brother was an ambassador, eldest daughter of a U.S. senator. Sorry, old, yeah, eldest child of a U.S. senator. Um, you know, I guess. No, I was saying, like, like, who was she? And, and you know, she managed to escape, and she has this like escapade through a through a poor Chinese village. Kind of, kind of. Who was she? And and what was what's her story in this in this incident? Well, she
1: actually did not escape. I think what what really happened was, you know, the the bandits had no idea who she was. If they knew that she was the sister-in-law of um, John D. Rockefeller, if they knew that her brother was a a member of Congress, if they knew that uh, her father, you know, was the former senator, you know, from Rhode Island and so forth, and that she was politically connected and quite wealthy, they probably would have kept her longer and used her as a negotiating tool. But they let her, basically they abandoned her. Part of it was because she was very talkative. Part of it was because she was slowing them down, you know. So, but she was clearly one of the most well-known of the hostages, you know, and she was actually in China, it was her second time she was on a second um, her second circumnavigation of the globe um, and she was going to, to Peking to buy exotic fabric and antiques and so she, she was a collector and you know and part of the reason she was there was to go you know and really to expand her collection um, and so um, that was why she was there um, but there was a lot of other relatively prominent, Characters that were, um, were were taking hostage as well. On the Chinese side, um, there was the grandson of Guan Shikai, who was uh, the first president of the Republic of China. Um, he was taken hostage, but he also was let go relatively early because the bandit chief, Sun Miao, was a bit intimidated by the fact that they had this very prominent Chinese, you know, very politically connected, you know, Chinese national that was, um, you know, in the group, you know, and so and Sun Miao did not want to intimidate, you know, Wan Shikai's family. So they let the the grandson go, you know, but also too, you have to imagine yourself at the Shanghai Nanking Railway Station, you know, on May 5th, 1923, you know, in this big room, and there are um, 300 people You know, be getting ready to board the train. And you can hear languages such as English, German, Spanish, um, Italian, French, um, multiple Chinese dialects. And then you can also hear Asian languages from all over Asia, Japanese, Vietnamese, and so forth. You know, so it's a very diverse group of of passengers that were going to board this train. You know, but it was also a reflection of Shanghai, a reflection of of the diversity of Shanghai, you know, in 1923. I mean, you know, but looking in that room, in addition to seeing people, you know, like um, Lucy Aldridge, uh, but you also saw families that were on vacation. You saw honeymooners, you saw business folks, you saw a number of the The bankers and stockbrokers that represented the very well known and prominent um, Jewish business community in Shanghai. Um, And you also saw some shady characters, too, you know, people that were, you know, um, you know, that had um, very interesting backgrounds themselves. And um, you always wondered what they were doing. Basically, they were well armed. You know and were carrying valuables and so forth on their own so you had some shady characters you also had some very interesting characters there was one gentleman who was a, a very famous lawyer um, by the name of GD Musso who was um, the lawyer for the Shanghai Opium Combine, which is like the monopoly that controlled the Shanghai market and in what he I mean, he was somebody that was extremely wealthy, having represented the opium interest. But he also had clients that were gun runners, that were um, casino operators, that were warlords, and so forth. And Musso was extremely interesting because of his political activities. He was he was a very strong proponent of Mussolini, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. who was at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so anyway, so you had a, a lot of very interesting characters in that waiting room getting ready to board that train. And even some of them would be, you know, um, you know talking among themselves, saying, well, I mean, you know, as we, you know should we be worried about banditry? Because that, that was something on everyone's mind, you know, is that, you know, it's something that was a concern because they were traveling across the countryside through the heartland. You know, and even at the time, there was a, a number of publications, you know, that were promoting tourism, and they even would address Bantudry, you know, in their tour books, in their in the guidebooks that they had. So if you were sitting in the train station with your family and you overheard somebody talking about Bantudry, you would p- open up what is called the Handbook for China, which was published mm-hmm. by Carl Crow. You know, the 1921 edition of the Handbook for China was kind of like the, you know, the Lonely Planet Guide for the time. You know, in that guidebook, um, it says that all in all, travel on the regular routes is as safe in China as it is in in any other part of the world. Robbers and pirates exist, of course, and there's usually a revolution or rebellion going on in some part of the country. But these things, add zest rather than danger to the journey, you know? So the guidebooks themselves are saying, hey, you know, this is gonna be a wonderful trip and don't worry about banditry because those those things add zest to your journey. So in that waiting room, you had Lucy Aldridge, you had GD Musso, you had the members of the Shanghai Jewish business community, you had honeymooners from around the world you had families with small children everyone is getting ready to board the train on that day on May 5th 1923
0: so so the crisis happens the trains derailed. the hostages are all captured um obviously people have to solve this problem um the chinese government the government of peking seems particularly hamstrung they can't they seem it's very tough for them to solve the issue the foreign governments also don't seem hugely constructive because they was it they want the hostages saved but say they won't do anything to like to to provide the guarantees that'll help that happen. So everyone ends up relying on um on this guy named Roy Anderson, this fixer, um, who does end up I think helping to to get this resolved. Um So I guess, you know, why did everyone trust this one guy, this one American in China to end up solving this hostage crisis?
1: I mean, Roy Anderson was a very, very unique individual, and he was someone, you know, that was indeed trusted by all the parties. And part of that, you know, he was born and raised in China. You know, his um, his parents were were um, missionaries um, and founders of Suzhou University, so he was somebody that was extremely fluent, you know, in the language, he was fluent in multiple dialects, you know, so he had a knack for the languages. He had also a a knack for understanding the political issues, the cultural issues, you know, and he was somebody that was there in 1911, 1912, during the revolution. And he was very much engaged in supporting, you know, the Republican, you know, governments and armies that were involved in the revolution um, issue. Um, and, and so he was very, very well respected uh, by all sides. But also, too, I think it, by the time Roy Anderson was engaged to be, you know, to mediate the dispute, you know, the, um, the Peking government, as well as the Shandong government, the warlords had tried many things. You know, they had sent delegation after delegation after delegation up to the bandit camp and they were rejected and part of that was a security issue part of it was a trust factor. You know, and the bandits were like, we don't want to deal with the government, we do not trust the Chinese government, you know, we need to have a guarantee and at first the bandits, you know, wanted a guarantee by the foreign governments. Ultimately, and I don't want to go into a whole lot of details about the story without giving away some of the endings, but a deal was cut and Roy Anderson was the one that negotiated that deal that allowed for the release you know, of the hostages as well as the incorporation of Sun Miao and his, his, his men you know, into a brigade. You know, of the Shandong Army,
0: so you know by by the end of the crisis, um you know the hostages seem to have maybe positive views is too strong, but they seem to have a more nuanced view of the bandits. Some of them hire some of them after this crisis is over. Um, you know it, it feels a little bit again calling it calling it Stockholm syndrome seems very reductive. I'm sure it was it's it's much more complicated than that um. But, I guess, you know, do we know what these hostages really thought of of their captors?
1: Yeah, part of my you know in in the process of research and in the process of uh, of writing this you know story, i um I had access not just to government records or or archives, but I also spent a lot of time getting copies of the letters as well as the diaries, the statements of all of the hostages. Um, as well as the rescuers and everyone that was involved in this situation, it was a wealth of information. I mean, in one of the you know reasons why this is such a great story is the source is actually all of these letters and all these viewpoints, you know, that people had. And then they and in in the in the reviewing these materials, you know, I could see that you know a number of the hostages had a lot of empathy for. You know the bandits especially those especially the sophisticated ones you know those that, that traveled to europe those that were traveled to russia you know even Miao, you know was respected by some of the hostages because well you know they saw that he was just you know fighting to be reinstated into an army you know that he was let go and was you know and hit without pay And had no job and that the warlords were creating issues, you know, with the villagers and for his home region. And they also during the march across the countryside, you know, a lot of these hostages and they and they wrote about it in their diaries, a lot of these hostages could see the devastation that was caused, you know, by the by the Chinese armies destroying village after village after village, you know, and so the hostages, you know, started really empathizing, you know, and understanding, you know, you know, the issues that some of these people went through. Lucy Aldrich herself, you know, in the story, you know, she starts off being quite arrogant. You know, she starts off, you know, basically demanding that the bandits leave her alone and go away and so forth. And in some respects, it was a bit comical because she was taking a lot of risk. But over time, when she ended up spending time in the villages, you know, and she wrote about this, about how, you know, her respect level, you know, increased as she saw the poverty and she saw the goodwill of, of how these people were feeding her, clothing her, bathing her, you know, and saw that some of the kids, you know, you know, were scarred by smallpox, you know, or the women that, you know, had basically nothing, you know, they had nothing, you know, so you, you could see that in the writing, you could see that in the letters and the diaries of all of these people, you know, that they had a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy for, you know, those that, that were their captors, you know, and that's something that um, it's, I think it's more than just the Stockholm syndrome, you know, but it was more of they were living together and they got to know these people quite well. Now, there was some bandits, you know, that it was hard to respect. Some of the younger, you know, very um, violent and volatile bandits, you know, that were either harming people or, um, you know, or shooting ca- um, or some of the captives. It was hard to respect them you know and and uh, you know and especially the the undisciplined bandits but overall the more mature disciplined you know bandits sophisticated ones you know the the captives the the hostages had a lot of respect for and it was not just because some of them got hired too but in the writings you know that you know um the hostages wrote about you know reflected that they had a deep amount of respect for them and without giving away the end the ending things don't end well for a lot of people you could see that you know some of the hostages wrote about that and were pretty unhappy with the way some you know uh, the way things ended for some of the you know some of those in the story including including some of the bandits
0: so i want to i want to ask a, a, I don't quite mean a slightly awkward question, but um, you know, the reason why this incident is was so important at the time, and I think is important afterwards, because it was a train full of wealthy foreigners, and it was wealthy foreigners that got captured. You know, would a train of Chinese travelers, and, and, and I know there were a lot of Chinese travelers, there are a lot of Chinese hostages too, but would a train that was just full of Chinese travelers, even wealthy Chinese travelers, would it have garnered as much attention and as much controversy um does the fact that foreigners are wrapped up in this um, make this make this event more historically relevant
1: no oh, absolutely i mean it's more you know if this was a train of of all high wealth chinese they may have been held captive but they would not have had the it would not have had the impact it would not have you know, raise awareness, you know, with the diplomatic corps in Peking. And quite frankly, if it was all Chinese, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that many of the, the hostages would have been killed in the crossfire because, you know, um, nobody would have been there to stop, you know, the warlord, uh, General Tian and General Ho, you know, from, you know, the use of force. It was the foreign, you know, the foreign, you know, diplomats that basically said, stand down you know so the fact that we had some foreigners not just drove awareness you know of the issues but it also you know um you know the fact that there was foreigners basically saved some of the chinese from getting shot you know because it was the foreign governments that said stand down you really need to stand down and try to negotiate with these people you know and get the the army to back off you know because that that was a big concern you know, so I think if this was a, if the foreigners were not on the train, it would be kind of a different story. Having said that, you know, I think Sun Miao would not have attacked the train that just just um, had Chinese on board, and his he was aware, you know, that there would be a mix of foreign nationals on board, you know, and when his men attacked the train. You know they were specifically looking for a broad range of foreigners, and as the hostage crisis continued over the five-week period of time, you know, Sun Miao was not going to release, you know, the, you know, all of those foreign hostages. He wanted to keep at least one from each of the each of the major countries represented. You know, so you had the the British, the Americans, the French, and the Italians represented. And they were, he was not going to release, you know, he was not going to release the hostages that represented those four major Western powers, you know. So having those Westerners on board was what his political strategy here, you know. So, I mean, he was a smart man. Sun Miao was extremely smart. In addition to focusing on, you know, the foreign you know, targets, the four hostages, he was well aware of what was going on, you know, on the train that specific night. You know, his spies told him that the train police that are supposed to be watching and guarding the train uh, that did not show up that night. Most of the leaders of the railway police were away in Tianjin. engine, you know, at their boss's birthday party. You know, Sun Miao was aware that night that the train was really unguarded, you know. And so that, I mean, he was a smart man. Sun Miao was very, very smart. You know, he knew exactly how to derail the train. He knew exactly when to derail the train, you know, and he wanted to make sure exactly, you know, he knew exactly that he needed foreigners, you know, as his, as his tickets. And, and, and that was his strategy,
0: you know, um, so, yeah, so you know, as i was as I was reading the book, and I was trying to think, like are there are there any um parallels to other hostage situations and it was very hard to think of them. I mean, Iran is similar, but different. um b a flight one four nine that was trapped in Kuwait during the Gulf War is similar, but also different. There was the that twenty ten hostage crisis in Manila, where a disgruntled police officer, I believe, captured um, a bunch of buses full of Hong Kong tourists that was also controversial and had foreign policy implications, um, but they all resolved very differently. I mean, is, is, it seems like the Lynch Incident, given the state of China, the imperialism, you know, what all these different things, it seems very historically unique, I guess.
1: I mean, it was very, it was a very unique situation and it's something that never happened before in China's history. I mean, you know, for the Lin Chung incidents was, I mean, it was almost the first and only time, you know, that China had, you know, a great train robbery, you know, um, I mean, in, in the U.S. and Canada and other parts of the world, there's a lot of holdups. There's a lot of stories about, you know, banditry and train hold most of it was for economic reasons. But, you know, for China, the Chung incident was a huge political event, you know, because it did have, you know, consequences that were pretty significant. But in trying to find a parallel, you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, I, my view is, is that it's just a reflection that, you know, hostage diplomacy is alive and well. And, you know, and it's something that you know, we're learning in a lot of places around the world that it still exists today. You know, I mean, I'm not sure I would compare it with some of the other examples that you had mentioned, you know, but it's clear that the taking of people, you know, and using them as a bargaining chip is a is a, is a tool, you know, that is used, you know, by good guys and bad guys all, all alike, you know. And and so in this in this situation, you know, I mean, it was the, the, the bandit chief made a decision that he was going to elevate this to just not just a, a local issue, not just to maybe taking one or two missionaries hostage in the countryside, but doing it in a way, you know, he was going to take a lot of people hostage. He was going to shut down the the express train which was in effect the the lifeblood of the country it was a the trains were a symbol of basically unifying this very fractured country you know and so in doing so this was this was a an incident that was it's really in some respects without precedent you know at least in China you know but um, but anyway I mean if you were to compare it with other, examples throughout history. I mean, it's just another example of using people, you know, as bargaining chips, you know, Um,
0: so. I'd like to maybe end then by by talking about what this meant for China, Um, you know, how it affected uh, discussions between China and other foreign governments, um, how it affected Chinese political development. You kind of mentioned both of those potential repercussions in in your book. so I mean, but what makes the Lencheng incident important in understanding China's history during this period? How his history developed, you know, after um, through through the through the twenties, thirties, and forties.
1: I mean, a couple of things happened. You know, I mean, on the day that the hostages were released, you know, the president in power, President Lee, you know, was was removed from office. He was basically forced out. And part of it was because he because he mishandled or is perceived as mishandling you know this incident he looked weak you know because the 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 foreign governments were pounding away on the peaking government so you know i mean so it did lead to it did lead to a um, a situation where you know the, the the government in power which had only been in power you know for less than a year you know, it basically, you know, had um, collapsed and another warlord came in, just like the, the revolving in, you know, decade after the fall of the Qing government. You know, but I think the most significant thing, um, the impact of China and China's place in the world, you know, is how, you know, the foreign governments treated China after that. You know, the Lin Chung incident clearly weakened the government. In a variety of ways, and at the same time, strengthen, you know, Mao. You know, now a way that it weakened the government was because in 1923, there was discussions to end what is called the extraterritorial privileges that had been negotiated, you know, after the Opium Wars. You know, this was part of the unequal treaties, you know, where the British, the United States, and other foreign Western powers had negotiated to have their citizens exempt from Chinese laws, from Chinese courts, from Chinese taxation. You know, and these extraterritorial privileges allowed all of those governments to set up their own court systems. I mean, the United States had its own court. It was called the United States Court for China. It was physically located in Shanghai. Same with the British, same with the French, same with multiple other governments. They had courts. And their nationals were not subject to Chinese court. They were subject to their own courts. And this um, these extraterritorial privileges were a huge embarrassment to the government. It was something that based, you know, the um, repeated Chinese governments, even the chain government, as well as the Republican government, they saw the extraterritorial privileges as a violation of, of their sovereignty. And so following World War One, China had been, you know, calling for an end to extraterritoriality. They called for it in the treaty with the, you know, after the end of World War I, but that issue was not addressed in the Treaty of Versailles. It was not addressed in what is called the Washington Conference, which took place in 1921 and 22. And then, you know, but after that, you know, conference, there was a, dis- a the plan the plan was in November of 1923, that there was going to be a commission on extraterritoriality, which would address the question of basically revoking extraterritorial privileges. So the game plan was 1923 would be the year that they would begin to unwind all that. And this was very, very important for China. All right, now after Lin Chang. You know, in the summer of 1923, the foreign, the Western powers and the foreign government said, You can't govern yourself. And we see no reason why we should end extraterritoriality. You're not providing the security. You're not providing the laws. It's, It's total chaos in the countryside. And we're just not going to end extraterritoriality. Now, that was a huge embarrassment for the government. It was a huge embarrassment for the you know the republican government in that you know was trying to find its place in the world you know and so i mean extraterritoriality remained in place for over 20 years it wasn't until world war ii and the invasion of the japanese that they the foreign the western powers finally you know gave up on extraterritorial privileges so it really the Lin Chung incident was the reason why they abandoned any talk of pulling back on extraterritoriality. And so that weakened the government. It weakened the government, you know, internationally, but it also, in the eyes of the up and coming Communist Party, they saw the Republican government as being completely incompetent and incapable, you know, of pushing back on the, um, you know, on the foreign powers, you know, and that only strengthened Mao. And so, so, you know, this the Lin Chung incident really had a huge impact on China's place in the world, and it was not just a, the the coup that removed President Li, you know, but also, you know, with with the issue of extraterritoriality, which was a huge, huge, a huge, huge um, issue for the Chinese.
0: Well, I think with that, that's a that's a great place to. Um, end our conversation with James Ehrman, author of The Peking Express, The Bandits Who Stole a Train, Stunned the West and Broke the Republic of China. Um, James, I actually have have two final questions for you, um, the way I end everyone's interviews, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
1: Well, I'm actually working on a project that I started before the Peking Express. I was, um, you know, writing a book about uh, actually the the United States court for China, you know, and I'm I'm writing about the first judge of that court who was basically sent out to China in uh, Shanghai in 1906, 1907, you know, to actually clean up the town, you know, and so this is uh, this is a. True, basically a true crime story that I'm working on, and so that that book I was working on before the Peking Express, and now that the Peking Express is out, I'm going back, you know, to complete that story as well, you know, and so um, and so that's what I'm you know I'm working on, but in the meantime, there's still a lot happening, you know, with the Peking Express story. The 100th anniversary of the event is coming up on May 5th and i'm going to be leading a tour of the shanghai Nanking railway station which is today the shanghai railway museum you know so on may 5th i'm going to be doing a tour of that as well as leading a tour across the countryside in shandong on may 6th and 7th and so a you know i'll be posting a lot of you know photos and information about these events on both the website the website is, you know, www.thepekingexpress.com, as well as on Twitter. You know, I'm going to be posting information about these events. And so that's, um, you know, that's what's coming up in moving ahead. And then hopefully in maybe 2024, 2025, I'll get the second, the, the other book done concerning the U.S. court of China. So and that's, uh, that's what I have going ahead over the next uh, couple of months.
0: I'll have to check out the, the Railway Museum next time I'm in Shanghai. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at The New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on my favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, James, for joining me today.
1: Thank you.